story of um, uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson who uh, decided to embark on a weekend camping trip and uh, they laid down for the night as they did that. The great detective uh, says, Watson, just look up into the darkness and tell me what you can see in the sky. I can see millions and millions of stars, says uh, Watson. And what does that tell you, Holmes inquires with a long draw on his pipe. Many things, my dear Holmes. Astronomically, it tells me that there are billions of galaxies in the cosmos. Theologically, it tells me that God is truly great and that, there is no, that we are nothing but insignificant beings. Meteorologically, he tells me that we will have a good chance of a beautiful day tomorrow. But I doubt that any of these opinions match the power of your deduction. What, pray, does it tell you? Sherlock Holmes gives an incredulous sideways glance at his friend and replies, As I look up into the darkness, my dear Watson, it tells me one thing, and one thing alone. Someone stole our tent. <laughs> you see, there are different ways of uh, looking at most things, and I would suggest that um, one of the biggest challenges facing us as Christians is to have a, a, a new way of looking, a new way of looking at other people. And instead of looking at others through our natural eyes, that we look at others through grace-filled eyes, that we look at them through the eyes of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers out into his harvest field. Those lines there. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the title of my talk today is, is Looking Through Grace-Filled Eyes. Now, I don't speak as an expert on this, as someone who always gets this right. There are times when I occasionally get this wrong. And there are times that I need to come back to God and ask for His forgiveness and ask Him to enable me with His grace and His strength and His power to become just like Jesus in this matter to look through his eyes. You see, I, like you, am a work in progress. And to use John Newton's words, John Newton was the writer of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, that when he was asked by a friend, how are you? Uh, John Newton gave an absolutely wonderful answer to that, and he said, I am not what I once was, and I am not what I will one day become, but I am what I am by the grace of God. The well, great answer that is, isn't it? You see, some of us are old enough to have sung hymns in assemblies when you were at school. Do you remember that? Can you remember that far back? That's amazing looking at some of you. I'm, su I'm surprised that you've got a memory at all, but there we go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Remember that one? 
And there's a third verse of that which says, uh, Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we. One in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Well, uh, George Burwer, the, uh, the founder and leader of uh, Operation Mobilization, wrote a spoof of that particular hymn. And uh, his third verse goes like this. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are all divided, many bodies we. Pretty strong on doctrine, weak on charity. And I just sometimes wonder, which version of that old hymn do those who are not Christians think is most true about the church? Do they see a group of adherents continuing to practice what they regarded as outmoded religious rituals and talking about irrelevancies? Or do they see in the church a vibrant faith which has affected our lives? Do they witness people who are often harsh and judgmental and dogmatic and doctrinaire and inflexible Or do they see grace everywhere? Do they see people who are more like the priest or the Levite, you know, in Jesus' story, who walked the other side of the road when they saw that guy who had been beaten up lying there in a pool of his own blood, I imagine? Or do they see people who are more like the Good Samaritan in that story, who went out of his way to tend and care for that man? Basically, do they see a church which is pretty strong on doctrine, but weak on charity? And this morning, I just want to build on the subject of last week. And last week, I was speaking from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul's words, when he says that I am what I am by the grace of God, and God's grace to me was not without effect. (coughs) In other words, it had made changes in, in Paul's life. And that, I would say, that if we truly understand what God has done for us through Christ, then it will affect everything. It will affect the whole of our lives. It will affect our relationships, our ambitions. It will affect the way that we speak to others, the way that we react. It will affect our money and as I said last week, the, those who are recipients of God's grace should always become dispensers of that same grace. You see, when someone becomes a, a follower of Jesus, <coughs> certain things start to happen in that person's life. And I'm sure you can recognize this in your own lives. That when a person becomes a Christian, their outlook changes. Everything changes the way that they view themselves and the way that they view God and Christianity and the world around them, it all changes. And their nearest and dearest um, will often observe those changes in them. Now, theologians speak of this as regeneration. That's the word that they would use. And speak of the new birth. And as um, John Newton wrote in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was blind but now I see. And that's what he's speaking about, what theologians call regeneration, new birth. Everything becomes new. It's it's God's work in us. The blinkers have come off. Everything looks different. 
And you see, God desires to change us from the inside out. And that's his work. But we need to remember as well that we are to cooperate with God. And this morning I want to be very practical and share with you four areas uh, in which we can join in with the good work that God is doing in our lives. Four things to remind ourselves of, if you like. Firstly, that we need to remind ourselves that we are what we are because of God's grace. If you are going to be looking through grace-filled eyes at others around you, that's the starting point. That's where we, we take off. That we look at others, reminding ourselves that we are what we are through because of God's grace. You know, to look through grace-filled eyes means that we first of all recognize what God has done for us through Christ. That we are what we are only because of his unmerited love, his unconditional favor, his love which is unlimited and unconditional and eternal. You see, that we are sinners who are saved by God's grace alone. And that our need for God's grace demonstrates that we are no better than anyone else, that we are no higher up that spiritual ladder than anyone else. You see, grace leaves no room at all for pride. And that we ourselves have nothing at all to boast about before God, except, that is, Christ himself and his cross. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by our works, therefore no one can boast. And to the Galatians, he writes in chapter 6, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So the first thing I would say, that if we are people who are desiring to be dispensers of God's grace, we've been recipients of it, yes, but we are going to dispense that grace to others, then that's the first thing that we need to bear in mind. That we are what we are because of God's grace. Secondly, <coughs> we need to remember to differentiate between the sinner and the sin. Now, we all know that, uh, that saying, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, yeah? I'm sure that we've all heard of that and we've all used that at some time. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus, more than anyone else, knew that sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. It robs a person of God's best. It uh, deprives a person of their true humanity. Irrespective of what that sin is, whether it's um, some kind of addiction or sexual sin or unforgiveness or gossip or selfishness or something else. You see, sin essentially is putting ourselves at the centre in place of God. That's essentially what sin is. And Jesus differentiated between the sin and the sinner. Do you remember the time, and we've mentioned it, Dan has mentioned it on occasions, I have mentioned it, that great story in uh, John chapter 8, with the woman who was brought uh, to Jesus, that she had been caught in the act of adultery, and the religious leaders asked, what shall we do with this woman? And Jesus said, you know, he that is without sin, throw the first stone at her, and the Religious people just walked away because they knew that they themselves were not 
right. They were sinners. And then Jesus said to the, uh, this woman, where are your accusers? Didn't one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, well, neither do I. Go now, leave your life of sin. You see how different Jesus was to the religious leaders who despised her. For them, she was just some disposable object that they were using in order to trap Jesus. To them, it didn't matter whether she lived or died. She was just a commodity and her death would have just been, I suppose, collateral damage. But Jesus, Jesus, he treated her as a person. He treated her as someone who has been made in the image of God. In fact, he loved her so much that he didn't want her to carry on the way that he was. And he wanted her to have a new start, a new birth, to go and sin no more. German theologian Helmut Thielicke wrote these words. And this is an incredible quote, and you may not catch it all in, 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 in one sitting, one hearing this morning. And I'll put it on the, uh, the notes with the podcast this week. So this is from German theologian Helmut Thielicke. Jesus gained the power to love harlots, bullies and ruffians. He was able to do this because he saw through the filth. Because his eye caught the divine original which is hidden in every man. When Jesus loved a guilt-laden person and helped him, he saw in him an erring child of God. He saw in him a human being whom his father loved and grieved over because he was going wrong. He saw him as God originally designed and meant him to be. And therefore, he saw through the surface layer of grime and dirt to the real man underneath. Jesus did not identify the person with his sin, but rather saw in this sin something alien, something that really didn't belong to him, something that merely chained and mastered him, and from which he would set him free and give him back to his real self. Jesus was able to love such men because he loved them right through the layer of mud. Now there's a lot of stuff there. It would take a month of Sundays, I think, to get through the, that wonderful, wonderful statement. It's a great quote. But what it's essentially saying is that Jesus didn't identify a person with a sin as we sometimes do. But he saw through all the layers of dirt and grime to the person, the real person, the one that God originally designed. And Jesus recognized that sin was something which was alien to God's intention. And Jesus would free him from that. That, essentially that, is to look at others through grace-filled eyes. On one occasion, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. And in John's Gospel, we're told that she was rather surprised at Jesus speaking to her at all. Because John's Gospel tells us that um, Jews and Samaritans, they don't associate with each other. And then the disciples came back. I don't know where they'd been. We're not told. The disciples came back and saw Jesus speaking with this Samaritan woman. And then we are told what happened in in verse uh, 27 of John chapter 4. They were all shocked to find him talking to the woman. But none of them 
had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking with her? You see, the disciples came along and as far as they were concerned, this woman that Jesus was speaking to was an outcast. She was an immoral woman. She was someone who had made bad choices in her life. And why was Jesus? Why was Jesus bothering with her? And she was a Samaritan. She was part of a half-breed nation that Jews just simply didn't associate with. And when you look at it like that, you know, this woman had been rejected by the Jews on behalf of her race. She had been rejected by her neighbours on account of her serial marriages. And yet Jesus saw her as a person and loved her. And that woman became the first missionary appointed by Jesus that we read of in the New Testament. And the first person to whom he openly revealed his identity as Messiah. And you see, the point that I'm getting to in all of this is that if we are true followers of Jesus, we must be the friends of those that society classes as outcasts. Have you got that? And there are many groups in society which are regarded as outcasts, and we are to be their friend. This week, on a couple of occasions, I was in the town centre around about 5.30 in the afternoon, and uh, I I, I met a, a same lady on two occasions, And uh, she was a lovely lady, um, probably late 20s, early 30s. She was selling a big issue. And I I normally, if I can, uh, purchase a big issue. And I just didn't have any money on me that day. And so I engaged her in conversation. I just found a little bit about her. She looked a little bit different in the way that she was dressed to other folk in the town. She was... um, Um, wearing sort of long shawls and Middle Eastern type dress and I discovered a number of things about her in in our conversation I discovered that her name was Monica that um, she had four children obviously they weren't with her they were with an auntie of hers uh, aged seven and six and three and two (coughs) I asked her why she came over to Britain from Romania she said that she came here for a better life with her family And I thought to myself, if this is a better life, if this is a better life, I I, I just can't even begin to imagine what a life must have been like over there. I asked her also how many magazines she had sold because she had been there all day in the cold and she had sold five magazines, which meant that she had £10 in her pocket. £10 for a full day's work in the cold. I'd asked her if she'd eaten. She hadn't eaten all day. And she was wanting to use that £10 in order to buy some food for her kids that night. On both occasions, thankfully, I was in a place to, um, to purchase, well, to, to actually give her some food, rather. And, um, and I'm saying this, and the reason I mention her this morning is not to somehow promote myself. That's, that's certainly not, uh, not the case at all. But really as a challenge for us to become more aware of others. Others sometimes who might be different from us in some way. that They might not look like us. They may not speak the same language. And then to look at them and to receive them through the eyes of grace, through the eyes of Jesus. You know, we can be all such busy people, can't we? That we can just motor on doing our own thing, being concerned about our own lives. 
And my challenge this morning is to have those eyes of grace, to open your eyes, to see other people, many in our community, many in our society, who are suffering, and to do that. Thirdly, we need to distinguish between what a person is and what they could become. What they are present and what they might be in the future. You see, those with grace-filled eyes, I believe, are people who see the potential in others. That's a characteristic of people who look through grace-filled eyes. They see potential where sometimes other people don't see that potential. They recognize that what they see before them is the clay. And that can be molded into a vessel of great beauty. People who look through grace-filled eyes see that Peter's leaders of the church come from Simon's with their reed-like qualities. And Paul's mighty apostles and great missionaries come from Saul's were arch-persecutors. Israel, princes with God, come from Jacob's, who were deceivers and schemers. And they realize that when Christ comes into a person's life, everything changes. That even the worst kind of person that you could possibly imagine can have a new start with Jesus. And those with grace-filled eyes and those who look through grace-filled eyes see that kind of potential. You know, Jesus turned a ragtag and bobtail group of no-hopers into his elite core. People like Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. Simon, and you know, being a zealot, that name went with him afterwards. And he was known as Simon the Zealot. Who were the zealots? Well, the zealots were freedom fighters. Someone who would kill for the cause of ridding Israel from the occupying Roman armies. And Jesus turned this zealot, this terrorist, if you like, this freedom fighter, into a trusted disciple who would use his zeal for a far more worthwhile cause. Again, there was Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, regarded as a friend of the Romans, who probably lined his own pockets with taxes paid by his own countrymen, despised by his own people as a traitor and as a thief. And he was transformed into someone who wrote an account of Jesus' life and whose words are now read and have been read by billions of people down through the ages. You see, Jesus just broke through the social and religious conventions of his day and he reached out to people that were regarded as outcasts, untouchables, or in Jewish ceremonial terms, those who were regarded as unclean. And you can find this on almost any chapter that you read in the Gospels, the way that Jesus did that. Yesterday I was looking at Luke chapter 8. And in this chapter there are three incidents which, which happen in quick succession. The way that Jesus reached across the social and religious divide to transform lives. First of all, we read of Jesus going sailing uh, um, across the, the Lake of Galilee to a region that was populated by Gentiles. And the first thing that he does is heal a demon-possessed man who was living amongst the tombs. And then he commissioned that man to go and be his missionary in his hometown. 
The next in that chapter that we see is Jesus. He, he was touched by a woman who had been suffering from a, a female problem for 12 years. And this problem disqualified her from worshipping at the temple, but it also disqualified her from having sort of social interaction with the community. And to intensify her shame, the Pharisees taught that such illnesses came about because of sin. And from there, Jesus proceeded to the home of a synagogue ruler whose daughter had just died. Now, Jewish laws, and we can find many of these in books like Leviticus in the Old Testament, taught that any such contact with such people in that chapter would contaminate a person. But Jesus, he reversed the process. Rather than being contaminated, he made the person whole. The, the, the naked madman who lived amongst the tombs, he didn't contaminate Jesus, he got healed. That pitiful woman who, who had that flow of blood didn't pollute Jesus, but she went away whole. A 12-year-old girl didn't infect Jesus. She was resurrected. And you see, the outcasts should never be sources of condemnation, but potential recipients of God's grace. And we as Christians, we as God's people, we need to be looking through the eyes of grace at them. And we are called to extend God's mercy and to be conveyors of God's grace in this world. It takes faith in God and confidence in the power of the gospel to do that. To believe that a Simon could ever become a Peter. To believe that a Saul could ever become a Paul. To believe that a wayward youngster could ever become a pastor. Or an alcoholic ever become a missionary. Or a serial adulterer could become a family man and a godly father. Or a murderer could become an evangelist. It takes faith in God and confidence in the power of the gospel to believe that. This week I was reading a story again of uh, uh, someone who was a part of my church when uh, I first became a Christian. I became a Christian in 1977 and I was a part of the Swansea Elium Church, one of our sister churches. And I think I've told you before that one morning I walked into church and there was just a deathly hum. There was normally such a buzz about the place. There was so much excited conversation, but not on this morning. On this morning, there was such a, a, a sort of just a, a deathly quiet over the, in the building. Now, from our church we had, in Swansea, we had uh, links to the, the missionary work that was going on in Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. And one of our own men, Peter Griffiths, and his wife, Brenda, they were missionaries out there with their children. And um, they were serving God in leading the Emmanuel Senior School out in the Vumba. And Peter and his wife and his family were actually home in Swansea because they were taking some time off, but they'd heard that there'd been a massacre of all of their friends, missionaries and their children, uh, then in 1977. And it was a terrible thing to hear that this, all these things that had been done to them. The women had been raped and, and killed and it was a merciless killing for these, the, these friends. Sometime later, Peter went out to um, Zimbabwe and he visited a Bible college 
And in that Bible college, he met a man who was known as Gavin. And Gavin confessed that he was the leader of the terrorists at that time. He was the leader of those men who just went in and wiped out all of those missionaries. And now, God had saved him, God had changed his life. And he was becoming an evangelist to to share the message of God's grace to others. I find that, you know, sort of just absolutely mind-blowing when I think of that. And we need to distinguish between what a person is, what they are presently, and what they can become. And finally, God loves others as much as he loves you. That's so important for us to realize. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And apart from the Welsh, God has got no favorites. You did know that, didn't you? So that person who is not like you, that person that you don't particularly like, that person who always seems to clash with you, you have a personality clash, is someone who has been made in God's image. And Christ loves that person as much as he loves you. He died for that person as much as he died for you. And that person is as precious to God as you are. Tony Campolo, the sociologist, Christian minister, inspiring speaker, professor at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, tells a heart-wrenching story of Roger. And I let him tell it in his words. Roger was gay, and he was in my high school. The rest of us used to tease him, especially on gym day. When we came out of the showers, we would whip our wet towels at him and think it was great fun to see the queer dance. I wasn't there the day that five guys dragged Roger into the corner of the shower and urinated all over him. But late that night, he went to his garage and hung himself. The day after Roger's death, I knew that I wasn't a Christian. If I had been, I would have stood up for my suffering brother. I would have said, if you are going to hurt him, you have to deal with me too. Because I didn't, I believe I contributed to Roger's death. How many of us by words spoken or unspoken, have created pain like Roger must have felt. Tony Campolo then, this was given in an interview, and he went on in that interview to tell a story about a pastor friend of his named Jim. Jim was a pastor in a poor urban neighborhood. And one day the funeral director called on Jim early one morning um, to see if he could do a funeral. No one else wanted to deal with this funeral none of the other funeral directors, because the guy had AIDS. Now, this was over 20 years ago, when much less was known about uh, HIV AIDS, and at that time it was a strange, new, virulent disease, which was found mainly in the gay communities. 
And Jim, the, the funeral director, said that he would do it. And in that funeral, 25 gay men came to the funeral. And uh, Jim spoke. And when he spoke, they just looked at the floor. Afterwards, in the cemetery, he, he read some scriptures. He prayed. He gave a committal. And then started to walk away. But the 25 gay men stood there as though they were frozen. And he went back to them and asked if there was anything else that he could do. And one of the men said, yes, yes you can. We don't go to church anymore. But back when I did, I loved it when the, the pastor would read from the Bible. You didn't read the 23rd Psalm, would you do that? And Jim read the 23rd Psalm. And then one of the other men said, there's a passage in the third chapter of John about being born again. I like that. Would you read that please? So Jim read that. And then the third man said, the eighth chapter of Romans, right at the end, that's what keeps me going. And Jim read the eighth chapter of Romans to these homosexual men. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, neither things present, nor the things to come, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Tony Campolo said that when his friend Jim had told him about this, this story, they both hurt. They both hurt. Because they knew that those men wanted to hear the Bible, but would probably never set foot inside a church. Because they were convinced that church people would despise them. God loves gay people. And we must love them too. And God loves refugees. And we must love them too. And God loves asylum seekers. And we must love them too. And God loves Muslims. And we must love them too. And please add to that list any group that society despises or distrusts or feels a measure of contempt for. Because God calls us to look upon them with grace-filled eyes and to look at them with the compassion of Jesus and to love them with his affection. You see, there are many who might be classed as social outcasts. And in some parts of the world, people are social outcasts. Women are social outcasts because of their sex. Others are discriminated because of their sexuality or the colour of their skin or their race, or their social standing. But as God's people, those who have been recipients of God's grace, we must be dispensers of that same unconditional love that we have received. I want to finish with a story. It's a story which illustrates, again, what I'm saying so perfectly this, this morning. And over the years, I've collected lots of stories. And... This is one that I have shared with you before. It's a, another Tony, Tony Campolo story. I just want to share you these words and it will probably bring a smile to your face. And It's a great story, and, but it sums up, it gathers together what we have been looking at this morning. Again, let me give it in his words. He writes, One day about noon hour, I was walking down Chestnut Street, Philadelphia, when I noticed a tramp walking toward me. He was covered from dirt, from head to toe. There was this filthy stuff caked on his skin. But the most incredible thing about him was his beard. 
It hung down almost to his waist, and there was food stuck in it. The man was holding a cup with McDonald's coffee, and the lip of the cup was already smudged from his dirty mouth. As he staggered towards me, he seemed to be staring into his cup of coffee. Then suddenly he looked up and yelled, Hey, mister, want some coffee? I have to admit, I really didn't. (laughs) But knew that the right thing to do was to accept his generosity. So I said, I'll take a sip. As I handed the cup back to him, I said, You're getting pretty generous, aren't you, giving away your coffee? What's gotten into you today to make you so generous? And the old derelict looked straight into my eyes and said, Well, the coffee was especially delicious today. And I figured if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with other people. I thought to myself, oh man, he's really set me up here. It's going to cost me five (laughs) dollars. I asked him, I suppose there's something I can do for you in return, isn't there? The tramp answered, yeah. You can give me a hug. To tell you the truth, I was hoping for the five dollars. He put his arms around me and I put my arms around him. Then suddenly I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. People were passing us by on the sidewalk. They were staring at me. There I was, dressed in establishment garb, hugging this dirty, filthy tramp. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. Then little by little, my embarrassment changed to awe and reverence. I heard a voice echo down through the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was the tramp you met in Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. (coughs) I will guarantee you that your attitude will change towards that grumpy old boss, that colleague who is a pain in the neck, that bad lad who lives up the street or whoever else, when you see them as loved by God and that they are loved in exactly the same way as you are loved and to the same degree, it will affect the way you pray for them speak to them, accept them, react to them. Soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart from all indifference. Set me apart. To feel your compassion, to weep with your tears. Come soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart. We're going to sing that now. Guys, would you like to come back? And I would like you, (coughs) just to make that your prayer, this morning.